Hey everyone, this is Ryan Smith. Uh, welcome back to the Threadcast, uh, the podcast for Common Thread Church, where we've uh, been diving into the book of Romans. Uh, kind of a theme is replacing power and privilege with peace. And we are kind of reading Romans backwards. We started in the back half of Romans and we made our way up to the front half now. We're in chapter 3 today. Um, but and I keep coming back to this, but this is so important. This is really affecting how we are translating, how we're understanding what Romans talks about, what Paul's doing. So I want to make sure that we're all on the same page um, and we keep going through this. Um, that that Paul was was trying to bring two groups of people together in the specific Roman church in Rome, and they were brought up. Uh, Paul labels them in the back half of Romans. He calls one of them the weak group and one the strong, and um, this is not meant to be derogatory. It's just a, a kind of way to they he describes them. And the weak were the Jewish Christians, and the strong were the Gentile Christians. It's something we keep on emphasizing um, because this is important in other conversations. Um, that Romans is to these specific groups of people. And so, um, not that it can't apply to the rest of us, but um, first off, we need to understand it's not to all Jewish people, it's not about all Jewish people, and it's not about all Gentile people. Uh, a lot of the, the majority of this is specifically to the speaking to the Jewish Christians and to Gentile Christians in Rome. Um, as we see later, this does apply to other churches outside of Rome, but this is where the intention started. This is where Paul was writing, right? And so, um, again, we understand that um, the Jews and the Gentiles, just by nature alone, um, were against odds with each other, were in conflict, did not like each other, right? Hat, Hatfield and McCoy's kind of deal. Um, but the... But then even when they came together under the Christian name, under Jesus' name, um, they they struggled. Uh, The Jewish people were kicked out of Rome for five years. Gentiles lived without them. They made their way. They made church. They did everything right. Then the Jewish people come back after five years. They're trying to figure out how to live together and this stuff. And, and And so Paul is trying to unite these people. Um, and a lot of this book, when he's talking about the two groups, he spends a lot of time speaking specifically to the weak. Um, and just because they were dominant in this and, um, they were the ones with the heritage for a long, long cultural heritage of, of understanding what was right and things that they were given to them were given to them by God. Um, but Paul is trying to say, look, 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 um, it's not like that anymore. This Jesus guy, he changed everything. Um, you know, he didn't demolish what you do, but but it's time to it's time to transform. It's time to 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 have a metamorphosis. And so, um, because the Jewish, why they called them the weak, um, it, again, is not because that they were less than, but they depended on the Torah and the teachings of the Torah for their understanding of being right with God, being a Christian, being justified. That's a big word we'll talk about it later. But um, they spent most of their time living out the Torah. And so the Torah was their crutch. The, the, the Torah was, was what they held to, and so that's why Paul labeled them weak, because they held to that. And so, in also doing so, um, the the Jewish Christians, in, in being so strict and holding to the Torah, they also felt 
privileged. They felt like they were the ones who sacrificed the most, who had done the most, who had followed God's will the most. And so they should be the ones in power. They should be the ones leading the church. They should be the ones. They are the ones in their minds, the ones who are the holiest of holies, if you will. And so Paul's like, okay, if we're going to unite these two groups of people, we, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to start on, on we got to level the playing field here. And so chapters one and two are all about leveling the playing field. He's leveling the ground. And he's especially, you know, he's especially talking to the weak, the Jewish Christians in those first two chapters. As a matter of fact, he throws out, we talked about earlier, he throws out in the end of one, he throws out this kind of little, um, trap, if you will. And two one, he kind of tells him, "Hey, you know that's not really, uh, you know, if, if you become the judge, if you start judging these Gentile people, you're just as bad. And whatever you think they're doing wrong, you, in your judgment on them, and you thinking you are better, and you thinking you're privileged, and you thinking that you are closer to God than them, you are wrong." And so one and two is is Paul leveling the playing ground. Um, and he's specifically telling the, the weak, the Jewish Christians, you can't depend on the Torah for your right rightness. You can't depend on the Torah for your relationship with God. You can't consider you are privileged because you know the Torah. You cannot be more powerful, the one in charge, because of the Torah. And so, chapter 3 is kind of the ending, the transition of moving from this, this level of, um, this leveling of the playing ground, okay? Um, and so you know, you see in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? It's like He's like, hey, the name Jew and the concept of circumcision, Torah things, no good anymore, right? So he's saying there, there's no advantage in that, all right? And then if you read 9 through 20, um, I just want to read it to you. It says this, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So here's that unification. It's not unification in excitement. It's actually unification in, hey, we're all bad people, right? Um, and we're not any, no one's better than the other. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So he's quoting Old Testament here, saying that no one, you know, from the beginning, no one has had it right. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We see that throughout all the Bible, the Old Testament, the Jewish people. You know, they, they continue to do bad things, right? So, so there's this theme that keeps going in verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says, now wait, let's go back. Let's go back. You know, when he's saying their mouths, there, 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 there. Remember, he's actually saying our. That's our. That's us. No one is right, right? So in 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, the law, remember, is the Torah, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So he just basically made this long statement of basically saying, you guys who are trying to live by the Torah, 
your righteousness does not come out of it. As a matter of fact, all it says is that there's so much laid out in the Torah, there's so much in the law that you cannot uphold, that it simply just points out that you're a sinner, not that you're actually righteous, right? It does opposite of what you're claiming it's going to do for you, just because you can't complete it. You can't do it. So, no one can be saved by the law, no one can be saved by the Torah, so how? So we're going to camp out in 21 through 26. And if you haven't already, pause this, read it a couple times. I'm going to read it right now. But I want this to kind of set in because this is going to be huge into um, what Paul's answer and how we become unified in righteousness. And there's going to be a lot of big words, a lot of big thoughts. We're going to go back through this a little bit. But I want to read this to you first and then have some conversation afterwards. So verse 21. But now, apart from... From the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So that apart from the law, that's a phrase that keeps haunting us. It'll keep coming back. But it's basically saying, okay, so away from the law. God has made righteousness available to which the law and the prophets testify. And he's what he's saying is this way to righteousness that, you know, it might seem like it's outside of what you think is right because it's outside of the Torah. But hey, by the way, the law and the prophets, they said this was coming. They said this was coming. All right. So verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all, to all, to all, to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. To all, to all, to all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so, uh, what Paul basically says is, hey, you guys have been dependent on the Torah, you've been dependent on the law, you've been dependent on all these other things, but it doesn't come down to who you are, it doesn't come down to what you do, it all comes down to the righteousness of God. Um, and Scott McKnight, the one who has been helping us walk through this series, wrote um, something about this, and I was trying to find a way to summarize it and share it with you but um this is just one of those i just have to read and so it's going to be on the screen if you want to read it with me pause read it but i'll read it to you um this is just some good stuff here um and again what we're talking about today you may have to kind of pause and think through and come back to it but uh, but just think through this it says the most important topic in romans 3 21 through 26 is god's righteousness which is openly revealed in the cross of jesus christ Righteousness describes an attribute of God and thus became a measurement, a standard, or relationship of God being true and faithful to the attribute of righteousness. God is righteous, and His acts and being are therefore righteous. In addition, righteousness at times emphasizes the power of God at work to save, redeem, and liberate in the world. Thus, righteousness becomes a gift to those who are unworthy of it. And one more paragraph. As God's power 
righteousness is communicated to believers to render them fit for God's presence. This righteous God makes people relationally right, or the word justifies, as a gift. In other words, God's righteousness is both an attribute of God, God is righteous, and a gift of God. It is God's gracious, redemptive power at work to make the world right through forgiving sin and establishing righteousness for all. And Scott includes creation in that. The dual side, attribute and gift, is explicit in 3.26. He is righteous and justifies, or he is righteous in justifying, where both terms are equal in the Greek. They are dikaios and dikaio. So basically, King Jesus is the agent of righteousness and making things right in the world, and he makes things right by death and resurrection. Okay? So I want to go back to this 21 through 26. So, apart from the law in 21, you know, this, and it's already anticipated, you know, all this is already anticipated by the Torah and the prophets. It leads to Paul talking about some terms that we need to walk through a little bit. Um, and I'm just going to give you brief, a brief kind of walkthrough with them, and I want you to kind of wrestle with them de- more deeper. But Paul uses two terms. He talks about the concept of justified through faith, and by his grace in verse 24. And again, um, this takes us right back to the concept of apart from law. So no human being can be justified by observing the Torah. Okay, and so this word justification, all right, it's a big church word we use sometimes. You've heard it if you've been around church, or this word to be justified. Um, It's this idea, it's a courtroom scene of God's recreating someone in the right through Christ. So basically, it's seen as a gift that justification at its simplest is is you being made right. That you are being made right so that you can be in relationship with God, right? Um, and it's a gift for all who have sinned. And just so we're all on the same page, all is all, right? It is everyone. One. So, that gift is spelled out clearly in two ways, okay? Um, in verse 22, we see that righteousness is given through faith, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is kind of our translation, and through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effectiveness, um and, and through, you know, effective through faith, kind of what we see in 24. So, two words here that Paul uses that we want to talk about is the concept of redemption and the sacrifice of atonement, okay? So the first word, redemption, is drawn from the commercial world, um, suggesting that we are purchased um, back, um, that we are liberated, that we are bought back at a great expense, right? The cross. That's where the cross comes into this. So so Jesus dying on the cross is our form of redeeming, being redeemed, being bought back. 
The second concept, the idea of sacrifice of atonement, that word atonement, um, this kind of comes from the cultic world, actually. This kind of comes from the religious world, if you will, uh, suggesting like the if you are familiar with the Old Testament, the, the temple's Ark of the Covenant, um, there was a mercy seat of atonement, um, the place of atonement, the mercy seat, the place of mercy, or on the day of atonement, the, this concept that at this altar of atonement, of, of atoning, um, that this is where forgiveness is given through the sacrifice. You know, back in the Old Testament days, it was where the, the priest would give sacrifices at the seat of atonement. Um, and, and so again, um, these are words that mean a lot, right? They, they have a lot of deep history in them. But basically, we in all this, God declares sinners right by grace and the righteousness of God. And it becomes effective through faith for those that believe um, um, in Christ, but also in the faithfulness of Christ. <laughs> That's where um, grace by faith we talk about. And it's not just our faith, but it's the faithfulness of Christ that redeems us. And so what's important is the ones that are specifically hearing this, you know, as Paul's writing this, are those that were weak. And he's simply saying to them, the Torah, the Torah, the Torah, observing the Torah does not bring you into rightness with God. But what is the unifier? God's righteousness. Okay, there's a lot in that. And um, for some of you, you've heard this, some of this before, and so it makes some of it. So I know some of you, you're hearing this for the first time. There's a lot, a lot in here to, to, to sink your teeth into, um, to marinate in. But I want you to hear the basic, so the idea is, is that we all, every person in this world, needs to be justified. And by God's grace, He has a plan. It's no longer based on what we do by observing the Torah or observing the law, or may I suggest even us using the word observing the Bible. Um, but it comes through redemption, through being redeemed, for being paid back for at the altar of atonement. Okay, And what I want you to see in all that is those are all God's roles. God is the one who is righteous. God is the one who is justifying. God is the one who is redeeming. God is the one who is providing atonement. Those are all God's roles through Jesus Christ. Our role is to believe. Oh, we got the easy part. Well, yes and no, right? I mean, yes, I... What God does is greater than anything we could ever do. I don't want to ever take away from that. That's not where I'm going. But but sometimes we think, oh, if you just believe, that's so simple. It, it, the word believe, we're going to spend some other time on that another day, is, is there's so much packed in it. But it's this basic idea that I release anything else in my world, in my mind, in my actions. I release anything that might have power over me. I release that. 
And I believe that there's something greater, there's a better way, there's a better story than anything I can understand. No matter how righteous, no matter how much I grew up in the church, no much how no much how no much how, how do I say no matter how much Torah or Bible I can recite or no much no matter how much I can do, um, no matter how many Ten Commandments I can follow, none of this stuff. That transformation does not come by Torah, nor by our works. But it comes through the graciousness and the righteousness of God. And the thing I want you to hear, there is nothing... There is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing that is too ugly, too dark for this plan not to work. And so I want to close with these two questions for you. What do you hold on to that makes you feel right with God? Okay, Uh, we're all going to put on the hat of the week in Romans. We're all going to pretend like we're Jewish Christians because we all, if we've grown up in church at all, if, we, if we've if we tried to follow God at all, we all have that one thing that we hold to that we think makes us Christian, that makes us right, right? We, And it it's not that it's wrong necessarily, but it becomes our idol. It becomes our Torah, Right? And so what is it about you? You know, could, you know, for me, just having the title pastor, right? For me, having the title pastor, that kind of gives me, you know, hey, I'm a creator. I've actually used that at times. <laughs> like if I'm trying to get in somewhere or I'm trying to convince somebody, hey, I'm a pastor. Like that should mean something. So it, that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> but what do we hold on to that makes us feel right with God that we need to let go of? The second question is, What do you need to let go of because you have been justified? So the the first one is, what what actions do I need to let go of? But also, what darkness in your life do you keep clinging to? What do you keep beating yourself up for? What do you still hold on to? That there's no way that I have made my, I've atoned for that sin. There's no way, you know, I'm still having to work that one off, right? I'm still, I'm not worthy because of, and what you need to hear is that you need to let it go. Is that in your relationship with God, in your justification, you have been redeemed for all your sins. There's nothing left. He forgives you. There's nothing you can do to pay it back. You are a child of God. Have a great day. Grace and peace.